where do you find your people? I know I'm still, I think, looking for mine and perhaps you are too. Now, what I've noticed is that what often happens is there's an initial kind of rough sort where you kind of get thrown in with other people with similar labels. And I'm noticing that because it's happened to me a bit recently. I spent time who are clustered together in the coaching space. And then recently I got together with I've got 30 people who are clustered together in the best-selling author space. And then I'm about to go off to a conference, which is a bunch of people who are in the management thinkers space. But that's just the start of it. Once you get into that rough sort, once you find the kind of generic people who tick the box, well, now your job is to find your people in amongst those other people. People who, well, what? I mean, how do you know who your people are? I realize that I keep looking for people who make me think and who make me laugh. So I realize I have to keep setting up conversations. I have to keep finding opportunities to bump into those people and give them the opportunity to make me think and make me laugh. And then, of course, sometimes your people don't actually need to be found. They need to be rediscovered. They're just already there waiting for you to reach out to them and to say hello. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Today's guest is a law professor with articles published in the Columbia Law Review, Yale Law and Policy Review, the American Journal of Criminal Law, and many more. His full name is W. David Ball, but I know him as my friend Dave someone I met when we were newly minted Rhodes Scholars at Oxford in the early 1990s. And, you know, beyond knowing the secret handshakes and the Mason-like rituals that every Rhodes Scholar gets taught, I'm joking, by the way, Dave and I share a certain way of showing up in the world. For good or ill, I'm not somebody who accepts received wisdom uh, that readily. And I think I'm somebody who really values authenticity and i think that that is what drew me to you is that you and i had deep and very connected conversations we would often grab a baguette at morton's on the broad that's kind of one of the big roads in oxford uh just across from david's college and from my college hartford as well it was about this time i was discovering just how great mango chutney is with brie oh my goodness that was a revelation and dave and i would hang out and we'd try and figure out who we were and where we were going and who and what mattered in the world now you arrive at oxford having played a game to get selected you know you have to jump through to hoops you have to be performative in a certain way for people to go yeah you're a you're a road scholar we'll pick you and one of the anxieties of some road scholars and i I can own up to some of this, is that you feel that you might have peaked in your early 20s and that it's all downhill from here. There's another anxiety, perhaps a deeper anxiety for some of us, that you have to keep playing games to keep succeeding. After getting the roads, there was, I was really depressed because I had expected there to be a sort of outside in, you know, oh, I, I'm going to live up to this thing. And then I found a lot of it actually quite empty. I'm very glad that I did the things 
that led to people, you know, deciding to select me, but that that wasn't important to me. In other words, Dave wasn't up for games. And after leaving Oxford in England, he started down what he refers to now as a bizarre path. I was an independent filmmaker. I was an improvisational comedian. I really wanted to do that in the way that only I could do that. So for me, that meant making a, a film in the style of John Cassavetes called Honey that never went anywhere, but the biographer of John Cassavetes thought it was brilliant. And he was the one whose book of criticism inspired me to make the movie and he liked it. But that's pretty independent, right? That's like that's like being the Velvet Underground when the Velvet Underground was the Velvet Underground, not when everybody knows that they're REM and all these other people's favorite bands, right? Like I was playing to a crowd of, you know, 10 or 15 and 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 that's one way to do it. From there, Dave, who is Muslim, worked closely with the ethnically diverse communities of New York City after 9-11. And then after that, his next step was just as unexpected. I couldn't really believe this when I first heard it. He became a law professor. You know, what I'm working on right now is alternatives to incarceration in Santa Clara County, California. It has 1.5 million people. It's where most of the action occurs in the criminal legal system is at the local level in the United States. It's not prestigious, right? So most of the stuff that I've been working on that is actually most impactful is least likely to get um, professional accolades because right. it's not always true if it's located in a particular time and place. If yeah. I wrote a thing about the theory of incarceration, well, someone would take that because that will always be cited. But if I'm writing about Northern California in you know 2023, that's a direct conversation with actual people with actual lived experiences. And I have those conversations with those people. It's not a road scholarly thing to do, right? A road scholarly mm -hmm. thing to do would be like, let me reinvent or, you know, something like that. And I've written those papers too. Yeah. Dave, when did you know for the first time that you tended to buck against received wisdom? I'm a younger child. Um, I grew up... Both my parents are from the American South. They are not wholly on board, I would say, there uh, with that. But there is definitely a because I said so vibe that ran through uh, my childhood and some of the places that I lived. Mm. Um, I think that that crushed my older brother. Um, but I as I think younger children often do, right? I picked the lane that was not occupied and I was just right. like, I'm not gonna do that. And I think that I got suspended in elementary school, <laughs> um, but I was also really good at taking tests. And yeah. so I was the kind of kid who was always in trouble and making good grades. And, um, but I also think that I'm just not, I'm not, I'm not very good at that. Um, I, I just, I'm not really good at, I don't have a good shit eating grin. Um, and I think that that's not always great, but sometimes it's great when I say, well, this is bullshit. Why are we doing this? The emperor yeah. really has no clothes. And with the U S criminal legal system, the emperor is butt naked. I mean, there's no yeah. question about that. Right. So, <laughs> uh, so I would say, yeah. Yeah. So how did you decide to play the road scholar game 
because you know there's a there's an extent to which that applying for the road scholarship and going for that is conforming to some degree of expectation some yeah. degree of shit eating grin so i'm curious to know what was the offer that made you go <laughs> i might I mean, i'm gonna throw my hat in the ring believe it or not i i actually researched what the program was and where mm. it was and what i would be doing wow. right because there's always i sit on the stanford roads committee and there's always that question like why do you want to go there and it's always vague about why they want to do the mphil and in international relations which is truly the american politico <laughs> who wants to do it i was right. like i actually do want to study ppe and yeah. And I said in my, you know, essay, I'm like, look, I think this will help me. I'll either go to, you know, become a historian and historian, if you prefer, uh, <laughs> I'll become, you know, an artist of some kind, uh, or I'll be an activist. And I think studying politics, philosophy, and economics will help me do that. There was some of it that was, I'm not ready to join the world because I don't, the working world, because I'm not sure that the job that I want really exists and I'm not ready to commit to that. Yeah. But, you know, my portfolio was like I wrote plays that were performed and I wrote a humor column for the daily newspaper and I was an environmental organizer and I was also, uh, you know, I've majored in history. And so I I had decided actually that I was going to be me because there was no other way I could fake that. And yeah. I'll tell you like one example. They at the sort of district interview, they all went around and they asked us questions about um what book we would take to a desert island. So we're in Atlanta. So first person says the Bible. <laughs> Next person says, well, I guess I will have to say the Bible. At that point, the people <laughs> who are running it are like, everyone gets to take the Bible. Move on from that. Yeah. The person sitting next to me um, says volume two of George Kennan's memoirs. Uh, mm -hmm. And I say, I would pick the Brothers Karamazov, which I'm told is actually the way to pronounce it. Because I ha it's long and I haven't read it. And that was true. <laughs> like, that is actually the book that I would take. Yeah, and lo yeah. and behold, I did read that next. I went to Oxford, you know, early. I went to the Lake District and I read Brothers Karamazov. But I wasn't going to bullshit somebody and be like, I would take X mm. volume two of George Kennan's memoirs. Like, that's not, that is the shit-eating grin part. And I could yeah. deliver, you know, I was like, I can take it one way or the other. If they're like, we want volume two, we'll take that dude. We want yeah. the guy who actually said something that is remotely plausible. We'll take that dude. And I could sort of let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I'm not sure we've ever shared this story, but I had a similar approach. I was like, I'm going to going to come a very distant last in this, <laughs> yeah. this short list. I'm like, I'm just going to be like, there's one through five and then number 12 is Michael and we don't have six through 11. <laughs> right, it's like right, so exactly. weirdly different. Well, that's why or I... That's why I was saying, why is it unexpected, right? It's like you yeah. and I have that in common. And I think that yeah. there's a, you know, for me, there's this punk band that I liked and still like um, called Minutemen. And they would always say, let your freak flag fly. Yeah. You yeah. were the dude who made his own shirts, <laughs> you know? And I was like, yeah, that dude is like, that's a kindred spirit right there. Yeah. Yeah. You talked about, you know, when you were applying for the, PPA and you're like, this is going to help me whether I become an artist or an activist um, or an historian. Um, I'm curious to know, and, and you're a law professor now, so kind of none yet, perhaps all of those things. How do you keep the artistic spirit of you alive? So I actually 
the good news and bad news about legal uh, publish- publications is that second-year law students make the decisions in the United States. So there isn't a lot of received wisdom, right, where you have to say, oh, I went against, you know, Professor Stanier on this. He's going to be my peer reviewer, and he's going to ding me because I rejected his theories about X, Y, and Z. Um, said. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know... And there's also lots of places where you can get published, right? Yeah. And it, you find your audience, um, and sometimes you get lucky and a, and a prestigious thing picks you, and sometimes you don't. But, you know, my most recent publication was called The Peter Parker Problem, and it really is about the way in which, like, Peter Parker models regret, right? You know, uh, the guy he could have caught ends up killing his Uncle Ben, mm-hmm. and... I think that that has such a hold on us because it does speak to, you know, the their behavioral economists, you know, Kahneman, Tversky, and Thaler, right, who always talk about endowment and, and various other things. And, and I was using that as a way of addressing what I was always seeing in bail conversations where a judge would say, well, if I let this guy out, what if he does something bad? And I thought, oh, that's basically Peter Parker, right? So, right. so that's a sort of maybe lighthearted example, but there's tremendous room for creativity in most of the mm. stuff that I'm writing. And a lot of it is just like, wait a minute, what's our, what's our evidence for that? Like, what's our rationale for that? So, so there's that there's, there's teaching, which is a, I think a very creative process yeah. if you let yeah. it be and you take it really seriously. I mean, I also do play guitar, you know, and I really enjoy that. Um, although my deal with guitar is that I'm like, I'm going to be okay sucking with it. I'm only going to start playing if I'm okay, not turning it into like a sort of mini job, which I did with yeah. photography. And and so so it really is, I think the essence of creativity is being in touch with who you are, what you want to say, what you want to say to others, what how mm. other people have moved you, right? It is part of that conversation uh, that you're involved with. It's like the most boring epistolary novel. That's what law reviews are. It's like <laughs> Michael Stander wrote five years ago about this, that, and the other. Here's my 80-page response with footnotes, and then five years later, you're going to be like, actually, <laughs> so you know, imagine that. That's somehow yeah. the way I, I think about it. Yeah. Um, Dave, what have you chosen to read for us? I have chosen to read Ulysses by Alfred Lord Tennyson. Fantastic. And the reason I have chosen to read it is because, as Morrissey once sang, although he's a bad person now for other reasons, has the world changed or have I changed? And this is one of those ones where I read it and I know that this, this, these words have not changed, but my relationship to them has changed dramatically mm. from when I first read it. And when did you first read it? I read it in high school and, yeah. and there are parts of it that were my senior quote that were very much, some of which I still agree with, right? That you, you need to live life to the fullest. Um, but now that I am living in Ithaca and I have, you know, two sons, I, I see a lot of abandonment and a lot of sort of, it's kind of jejune to say, well, I spent 10 years trying to get back to you. This is boring. Let's go back (laughs) out again. Right. I mean, it's said much more artfully than that. And I'm not, but I think as a, as a 17 year old, I was like, yeah, I want to get out of Atlanta. I want to go do other things. I'm around people who are not taking chances. And that part of it spoke to me and still does. But now I see 
the sort of restlessness as being related to this, what you and I have been talking about, right? This desire for greatness and ignoring the import of the people who are in your immediate vicinity, ignoring the I, import of human connection, really not valuing um, the depth that you get with non-heroic activity. And that there, or if you want to put it another way, there is heroism in taking care of someone. Um, yeah. If you want to yeah. keep the frame of heroism, but I, I don't really want to keep the frame of heroism anymore. That's great. I, this is gonna be, I can't wait to talk to you about this once you've finished reading it, but let's, let's hear okay. the excerpt. That, um, are you reading the whole poem or an excerpt? It is from two it? pages. Perfect. Okay. Lovely. So I printed it out. I didn't change the font. That's a, you know, That's I'm, fantastic. A, I'm, a lot, I'm a professor. I don't, I don't do that stuff. So. <laughs> Ulysses by Alfred Lord Tennyson. It little profits that an idle king by the still hearth among these barren crags, matched with an aged wife, I meet and dole unequal laws unto a savage race that hoard and sleep and feed and know not me. I cannot rest from travel. I will drink life to the lees. All times I have enjoyed greatly, have suffered greatly, both with those that love me and alone, on shore and when through scudding drifts the rainy Hyades vexed the dim sea. I am become a name. For always roaming with a hungry heart much have I seen and known, cities of men and manners, climates, councils, governments, myself not least but honored of them all, and drunk the light of battle with my peers far on the ringing plains of windy Troy. I am a part of all that I have met. Yet all experience as an archway through gleams that untraveled world whose margin fades forever and forever when I move. How dull it is to pause, to make an end, to rust unburnished, not to shine in use, as though to breathe were life. Life piled on life were all too little, and of one to me little remains. But every hour is saved from that eternal silence, something more, a bringer of new things, and vile it were for some three sons to store and hoard myself. And this gray spirit, yearning in desire to follow knowledge like a sinking star beyond the utmost bound of human thought. This is my son, mine own Telemachus, to whom I leave the scepter and the isle, well loved of me, discerning to fulfill this labor by slow prudence to make mild a rugged people and through soft degrees subdue them to the useful and the good. Most blameless is he, centered in the sphere of common duties, decent not to fail in offices of tenderness and pay meek adoration to my household gods when I am gone. He works his work, I mine. There lies the port, the vessel puffs her sail, there gloom the dark broad seas. My mariners, souls that have toiled and wrought and thought with me, that ever with a frolic welcome took the thunder and the sunshine and opposed free hearts, free foreheads, you and I are old. Old age hath yet his honor and his toil. Death closes all, but something ere the end, some work of noble note may yet be done, not unbecoming men that strove with gods. The lights begin to twinkle from the rocks. The long day wanes, the slow moon climbs, the deep owns round with many voices. Come, my friends, tis not too late to seek a newer world. Push off and sitting well in order smite the sounding furrows. 
For my purpose holds to sail beyond the sunset and the baths of all the western stars until I die. It may be that the gulfs will wash us down. It may be we shall touch the happy isles and see the great Achilles whom we knew. Though much is taken, much abides. And though we are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven, that which we are, we are. One equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will, to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. And that was fantastic. Thanks, Dave. Sure. Why does that move you so? <laughs> you know, it's it's funny. Um, I I read it a bunch of times in preparation, you know, for our conversation, and it didn't make me cry. But I think what that is is that he's content to. I mean, this is a new thing for me. He's content to leave his child, mm. his child who did not see him for ten years, his child who waited to see him. And when I think about the love I have for my children, and I think the necessary difficulties of parenting children, and not that combination of recognition and difference where you say, yeah, that's a lot like me, but we're also really different in some ways. And sometimes I overstep my bounds by by not understanding just how different we are, or I overstep mm. my bounds by not taking their struggles seriously. When I was mm. 17, my struggles meant everything to me. I didn't want to hear from somebody that <laughs> they didn't matter, that they were real. And yeah, yeah my perspective on that is different now. Mm. But but I didn't have access to a 52-year-old's perspective, or I think I'm, I'm 53 actually. Um, 53 year old's perspective on that. And so it's when I think about my sons, I can't, I can't put myself in that mode without thinking about how, how shut off he is, right? He's yeah. going to not only, de I mean, I actually said it from the child's perspective, but when I was reading it, I will say, and, and this is part of the issue of, reading something that was my senior quote in high school and reflecting on it now, it's like, Ulysses, you are isolating yourself from something beautiful and really mm. meaningful. And that's terrible. That sucks. Like you're, it, and you don't value that, but you're missing out. And I think that that has really been a huge difference with, between maybe the fathers of, of my generation in the United States. Mm. I don't know, you know, Australia, you can you can talk about that. You know, my father worked all the time. I didn't really know him until I was about 17 or 18, until I went yeah. off to college. And I was like, dad, I don't give a shit what your job is. I got a full scholarship to go to college. And I was like, dad, quit your fucking job if you don't like it. Because he would always be like, well, I have to work so hard because of you. And I was like, I have my own money now. Quit your yeah. fucking job. And we got to know each other as adults. And it was really meaningful to me. But I, you know, it was... It's, it was a real lost experience where I was like, dad, I could have used you, you know, mm. I could have used you and you actually, I think would have really enjoyed that. You would have been a great dad. So I think that's really why 
that's some of what's coming up, but you know, sometimes just shit comes up. And, and <laughs> yeah. one of the things that I'm comfortable with now that I don't think I was when you and I knew each other, although I do remember crying at our male discussion group and I, I yeah. talked about some pretty serious shit there is that I'm cool with crying. Like that's part of the human experience. And I don't want to deprive myself of that. And yeah. you know, in my professional life, I think that a lot of the people who end up hurting other people are there because they can't figure out how to express themselves or relate to them. That's the good lives model, which is actually a, an Antipodean, uh, you know, criminologist who has that theory. But I didn't know that. Um, how do you keep your heart open to the ambiguity and mess and delight of the closest relationships to you? It's really hard. I mean, it is an active, it's an active process for me mm. that isn't like I did not grow up in a family environment where I was that was welcome. Um and I you know, I don't my parents had their own issues and they grew up in a family environment where that was also true. So yeah. this is generational. So it's not like my parents invented it and they did the best they could given what they had. You know, I, I was told by my dad when I was 13, you're like me, you don't feel, which <laughs> is incredible to anybody who has even a passing familiarity with who I am, right? <laughs> and it was also true of my dad. It's like, dad, you're not like that either. But, you know, I guess we've all got yeah. our roles to play. Um, so, you know, I think it's really, there's a, there is an outside in fake it till you make a component to it, mm -hmm. um, that has been there. There is also as, and this is actually part of the, the odyssey that really moves me is that, you know, when, when Ulysses dog recognizes him and right. dies and you saw that I got choked up about that too, because we have two dogs and I had dogs growing up and dogs are patient, loving beings. They're not going to tell you anything. They're just mm -hmm. going to be with you and they're going to let you love them, which is a skill that's very difficult. Uh, and they're going to love you, which is also difficult. But I think the former is actually in some ways more difficult. Um, yeah. It is for me. And so really concentrating on that and saying, all right, well, wow, this is uncomfortable um, because I don't have, you know, because of my background or whatever. My, my family does make it pretty easy for me to love them. And I've also been very clear that they're my sort of North Star. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, I guess that's that's as close as I yeah. could. But it's not a it's not a thought thing, right? It's a it's a it is really like oh, I'm aware of what I'm feeling, nonviolent communication. And I'm sure you know about all the sort of you know the yeah. techniques about that. Um, so it's, a lot of those have been helpful to me as well. You know, um, one of the things about being a Rhodes Scholar is you kind of get anointed. <laughs> Here's a crown. We expect you to go fight the world's fight. You know, achieve great things be a great man or a great woman or a great gendered fluid person. Um, and part of what I hear in the poem you've chosen is 
you know, Ulysses longing to have that adventure again. Yeah. Like, you know what? I'm, 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 I look, I want to fight battles. <laughs> I may be old, but I've got a heroic heart. Get me out of this tedious court and right. this aged, you know, this idol kingship and let me get going. No one's going to write an epic poem about my life as ruler of yeah. Ithaca. Yeah. That's right. And what I hear you saying is, um, you see the, the, the hollowness and the price of that, but I'm, Curious to know how you sit with ambition. So I think, right, that framework, and I sort of alluded to this as the sort of the heroism of the everyday, but I don't even like the heroism yeah. rapper, right? It's yeah. not that I'm moving away from, and you know, this is the most I've talked about being Rhodes Scholar and probably since we were at Oxford, right? You know, yeah. um, I think that's probably the least interesting thing about me or you at this point, right? I mean, it is a part, hey, I'm a part of all I've met, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. So it's more moving toward, right? And this is something, again, you know, when uh, the, my closest colleague at work, her name is Michelle Oberman, so she's the one. Whenever I say, I talk to people that work about this, it's really just, um, so <laughs> but she's an amazing person and a really good friend, um, is like move toward the light. Right. So I'm not mm -hmm. moving away from something because there isn't anything to that. Right. Yeah. So you're a Rhodes Scholar. So what? Like, you know, I always viewed it as like I did these things and the things that I did are what was important, not the, you know, the the sticker that somebody put on that being like, good job. Right. Uh, when I grade my students exams, I release them with my comments. That's like, here's what I thought about your thoughts. Yeah. The studies show that if you give people a grade, they just look at the grade and they don't look at the they probably don't look at my comments anyway, but I'm going to do that because that's how I roll. And I want them to know, like, here's actually the conversation you and I, are. there's teaching still to be done here. Yeah. And that just feels so much better to me. That feels so much more like there's real communication going on that feels much mm. more earnest. And so, I mean, I'll tell you like my, my, one of my most prized possessions, frankly, um, I did this, th you know, I've been to prison a bunch of times as a visitor, ha ha ha. You know, and, and I went and we did a sort of step up, step back. And, yeah. you know, and outside, exercise. Yeah. yeah, outsiders, insiders. And a step forward was I've murdered someone. And I looked at the gentleman across both the way from me and I did not break eye contact. And I did my best to see him as not the worst thing that he's ever done as understanding that there's a whole person inside there. And that includes somebody who is, was traumatized, who has remorse. And then we handed out these cards and it was like, you're the most blah, blah, blah. And that dude handed me most compassionate. Mm -hmm. And that like, the world's color means nothing compared to that. <laughs> nothing. Nothing. Yeah. yeah. Right? And I'm not the central figure in that dude's life. But that moment, like, I channeled all my fucking dog energy. And I was just like, I'm here with you. Like, I'm yeah. here with you. Yeah. We're having this experience together. And so it's not hard. It's like, it's like saying, well, why do you want to eat good food? Why do you want to fall in love? Why do you want to listen to great mm. music? Like, because that is all that matters. And I think the sort of illusion 
you know, Ulysses is like, hey, bro, you know what? The, the, it's an archware through gleams that untraveled world whose margin fades forever and forever when I move, i.e. you're never going to get there, <laughs> right? And every time you get something, you're like, what about that? You know, and then what I've really tried to do a lot of times, and this is from a guy who was in the City Slickers movie, a guy named Bruno Kirby. He's a totally like C-list actor. He's now dead. Many recipes. <laughs> Sorry, Bruno Kirby's family. But he was always like, I look at the people above me on the ladder and I'm like, why, why not me? But then I look at the people below me on the ladder and I think, why me? <laughs> and I really try to bear that in mind, right? It's like, yeah. well, you know, I, I don't need to be something else, right? I need to be cool with the things that I'm mm -hmm. being. I have standards. I have aspirations. I, When I write, I write well and I put my heart and soul into it. Yeah. But the reception of it is not what I'm doing it for. It's to reach the people who want to be reached in the way that I myself was reached by all the, like the yeah. shitty indie bands that were never popping. I never heard of Minutemen. I told you like they're my favorite band, but it's true that if I could say like, Hey, do you like Minutemen? And someone says, yes, I know yeah. that I like them. That's yeah. still true. Yeah. Dave, when you think of your work around incarceration and you know, it's a bigger industry in America than anywhere else in the world. Yeah. Um, how do you keep going with something that feels so systemically overwhelming? So my wife, as you know, you know, has worked a lot on human rights stuff, torture, work with torture survivors. And I could not do that work. Hmm. And she finds my work. She wouldn't want to do that. And I, and I think, and this is what I usually say to my students. There's secondary trauma throughout the criminal legal system. There's primary trauma throughout the criminal legal system. And it's okay if it's debilitating for you, right? Because the way that most people have dealt with it have just been to become alcoholics. And I'm not saying that lightly or as a joke. Like there is right. there's huge substance abuse in the legal profession in the United States generally. But I would say among public defenders and, you know, death penalty lawyers, it's really significant. For whatever reason, I have calluses, not calluses in the sense where I don't feel, but calluses in which my skin is not being burned off by mm -hmm. holding something that is still hot. Yeah. And she has that with torture and I could not do that. And the reason I mention that is just because I mean, I think my wife hung the moon, but it's just different, right? It's different. I could not work in, you know, um, and a lot of, there are lots of other, you know, like children's cancer ward, you know, yeah. working with uh, people who are fleeing from, you know, domestic mm -hmm. violence, working with kids who've been, you know, sexually abused. Like there are lots and lots, there's lots of pain in the world. And I picked the one where it's like, I think I have some insights. I'm not going to lose sight of the humanity of the people who are incarcerated. I'm pleased yeah. to say, actually, my you know, co-chair of the Corrections Committee, and, and I did not write this. It was a woman named Lynn Branham, and we got some help from uh, India Tusi and Anna Roberts on this proposal. My co-chair on the committee is Karamit Ryder. But we proposed person-first language for the American Bar Association, which is the largest you know, group of lawyers. And that just means people with felonies, people who've been arrested, you know, but they're people. And that just passed. It, it got oh, congratulations! It got crapped on 
last year. It was ridiculed. And then it passed unanimously. Mm. And so I think that that, so I really try not to do Like you do have to be open to the humanity of the people you're dealing with. Mm. You have to deal with the very real suffering that these folks, you know, who are incarcerated usually caused. And, but there are so many ways in which our system is just completely illogical that we we're not getting to the close cases in the United States, right? As, as I say to my students, like we incarcerate in the United States more people than any society at any point in human history. We can quibble about, you know, enslaved persons, et cetera. I mean, like, so there were different ways of dealing with crimes and banishment and all that stuff. But either we know something that everybody else who's ever lived doesn't, or we need to justify our system. And that is fundamentally what my what animates a lot of my writing. Okay, right. prove that prison works. We actually don't have evidence that prison works. Prove that prison works at all. Prove that prison is the most efficient use of our resources. I've written a series of papers about that. Yeah. What's, what's known as the correctional free lunch. And, you know, folks are interested, whatever they can read it, but I don't know, you know. So one of those papers is called Why State Prisons? Because I'm almost like, well, if this doesn't make sense, why do we have state prisons? I'm like, huh, let me write yeah. a paper about that. You know, so et cetera, et cetera. You said you chose this work. Uh-huh. I'm I'm curious to know how you how you figure out what to choose. You know, how do you find the pain in the world where you're like, I have calluses. I can, I can bear the heat in a way that other people might not be able to bear the heat. Was there a, was there a moment you knew or did it kind of emerge as the thing that might call you forth? I was very fortunate to have amazing professors in law school. I loved law school. I'm one of the few people, it was actually my favorite educational experience ever. I unfortunately lost uh, one of my mentors, Joan Petrosilia, uh, same year that my dad passed away. It was same year. A lot of terrible things happened. Um, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And, and also Bob Weisberg. And those were folks who I was lucky in that they took my ideas seriously, mm. which is really huge. And that's what I try to pass on to my students. I try to take their ideas seriously. Um, I was outraged, so I wouldn't say that it was very calm. I was just so outraged by how much suffering there was and how callous people are and just how racist the system is. I didn't feel like I could abide that. And I also will tell you that in law school, as with any of the other educational experiences we've talked about, you know, when I went on the job market, people were like, yeah, our, our sort of non-bright students go into criminal law, right? It's not sexy. Like, you want to be like a litigator or a constitutional lawyer? Like, who, who gives a shit about crime? Like, you know, that's for people who want to work in state government. Forget that, you know, like, yeah. and and I was like, great. I, you're zigging, I'm going to zag. Um, yeah. So I wouldn't say that I, that I built up calluses to it. I, I found the problems morally compelling, and I also found the problems to be intellectually compelling. And, Mm -hmm. you know, my first paper, I clerked for a judge, John Noonan, also has passed away, but he really supported me. He was like, what can you do with this? And this was a guy who had been denied parole eight times. He was given a life sentence with the possibility of parole, and he was denied parole based on his commitment offense. 
And in the paper I wrote about this, I refer to this as the five easy pieces, life with the possibility of parole, hold the possibility of parole. <laughs> um, and that just seemed completely unjust to me, right? If he, if what yeah. he did was so irredeemable, don't tell him that he can get parole only to deny him based on what he did. So that had a sort of clarity to her. I'm like, well, this is clearly wrong. And it's also, it's clearly false in the intellectual sense, but it's also not right in the moral sense. It doesn't, mm -hmm. it's not what we say we are doing. It seems hypocritical. And that really, you know, sort of sent me down the path of kind of pulling at the string of saying, wait, what evidence do we have that prison works? What evidence do we have that we talk about mm -hmm. you know criminal penalties deter people. What evidence do we have about that? What evidence do we have that criminalizing cannabis ever did anything to stop kids from using it? Right. So, so those are questions that have a moral component to them. But some of it, frankly, is just my feeling like, hey, wait a minute, the, this is really an emperor has no clothes kind of kind of moment. Yeah. Dave, what's so interesting and wonderful about you is three things this kind of intellectual rigor that you bring, this ability to think systemically and kind of look at that bigger picture. But at the, as I would call it a foundation, which is this kind of commitment to being present to a whole person. You know, Martin Buber's philosophy, there are two types of relationships, I, it, and I, thou yeah, relationships. Yeah, yeah. And what I hear you saying is the system makes everything I, it, Absolutely. You keep pulling us back to I, thou, and it's like, this is a full person. They're not the worst thing that they've ever done. Where did you learn? How have you learned to hold that space to see the whole person? Because that is rare and it's hard. I mean, I think probably my main influence, you know, is my wife. Um, mm. And she is she is able to take on someone else's perspective without losing her own. You know, the sort of metaphor that I use now in my, in my therapy is that, you know, I, I think, and this is true of sort of Rhodes and also true of most hierarchical society, there's a pyramid. I'm on top, Michael, so you're right below me. And I want to see things as being on a mesa. Like we're all mm -hmm. on this level together. And you know what? You have a different experience and I have a different experience and I can, I can understand your experience and have a different one. Yeah. But I've really, really struggled with that because I don't feel like I grew up with that. So I would just say, you know, she has taught me that my children have taught me that a lot of my students have taught me that. And I learned these lessons the hard way where I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm doing to people what I really didn't like what was done to me as a mm -hmm. kid. I'm being told what I think. I, when I was told what I thought and felt and not taken seriously, I really hated that. And I just yeah. did that to someone. And that's that's really, really, really painful. And so I have made and will continue to make a ton of mistakes about that. But it's those glimpses of, of life's sweetness you know, it used to be where I couldn't read letters from my students saying, like, you were a real mentor to me. Like, I literally could not read them. They were like, holy water. And I did not feel holy. I felt like I was going to burn me. Mm -hmm. I couldn't. And that's sort of why I made that not joke to you about the reverb, right? Is it's very, yeah. very important. It completes the circuit. If someone's like, I love you, don't freak out about it. Just say, hey, 
I accept your love. Yeah. That is the heart. That's why I said the thing that dogs do that I cannot do is accept love. <laughs> so that's all been part of this. That's all been part of this journey that I think started with art and has continued through my personal life. But I'm, I'm learning, right? This is really much more like, you know, doing sit-ups or doing some kind of daily exercise. Yeah, I agree. I'm never going to be done with that. Dave, it's been such a great conversation. As soon as we hang up here, I'm going to call you so we can <laughs> find another time to keep okay. going. Okay, yeah. Because I, because I have to go for another another conversation, and I wish I wasn't stopping this one. Um, but can I ask you a final question? Sure. What what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said between us today? Here's what I want to say. I'm so glad you're my friend. I feel <laughs> so you. fortunate that I know you and I wish we saw each other more often. Thank you. And I feel the same. And the reason why I want to say that, like, yes, there are problems in the world. I'm happy to talk to anybody. Everyone should email me about the problems of the world. But I just feel like, you know, if this were everyone's orientation, it would make everyone feel better and the world would be better. So I want to lift that up. It's like, hey, mm. my relationship with you means a great deal to me. And I'm really thankful for it. And I have the opportunity to tell you that now. And I'm telling you. And I'm going totally off script. I'm being the 12th place road scholar out of five, right? <laughs> <laughs> this is not serious to hearing. But, you know, this is, this is my thing, right? This is the song I'm playing. When Dave talked about his work, that small, anonymous, grinding work of trying to dismantle the prison industrial complex in California, you know, this is before he read the poem, he said that work was not prestigious. This is the small, daily, anonymous work of the activist. And I so appreciated that humility. I appreciated his willingness to interrogate what it means to not be a hero particularly when, and this is a, a line from the poem he read, I am become a name. You know, when you get that label Rhodes Scholar, there is a certain pressure to become a name. Maybe you've already feel you've become a name. And for Dave to, well, I guess it's this, when I see, what I see in Dave is this idea of Gandhi's of being the change you want to see in the world. And if that change is an inversion of how power works, and maybe I'm just projecting because this is something I think about a lot. If it's an inversion of how power works, and if you've been granted the throne and the scepter and the crown, well, it can mean that you have to put those things aside. And that's not an easy thing to do. This is the paradox. How do you use your power to give up your power and to give or invite others to take that power? If you enjoy my conversation with Dave, it certainly was one of my favorites. Um, I've got two possible guests for you, past interviews to listen to. The first is Arthur Brooks, The Search for Purpose. And the second is Dr. Robin Hanley Defoe, which is a conversation entitled Getting Better at Falling Apart. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate your presence. I appreciate you giving me your time. I appreciate Two Pages with MBS being one of your favorite podcasts and you taking the time to listen to it. Um, it's certainly a boon for me to do this podcast. 
Um, if you've liked it and you loved it, um, please give it a review, give it a shout out. If you liked an episode in particular, feel free to pass it on to a friend of yours who you think might enjoy it because we certainly grow by word of mouth. Um, and thank you also for those of you who bought my new book, How to Work with Almost Anyone. It's the success of books like that that allow me to do podcasts like this. You're awesome and you're doing great.